Welcome back to the podcast, Deep in the Heart and Vascular of Texas. Today, we continue our conversation with Dr. Vila Patel, Vice Dean of Healthcare Quality and Division Director of Critical Care Medicine and Professor of Medicine at McGovern Medical School, along with Dr. Charles Trey Miller, the Associate Vice President of Clinical Research and Healthcare Quality and the Associate Dean for Hospital Quality at McGovern Medical School with UT Health. We continue our conversation and shift towards the future and recovery efforts surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic and how these changes will impact the healthcare industry with regards to research and quality. I've been fascinated with uh, different stories across the country of different institutions coming up with ways to recycle PPE and re-sterilize PPE. And I, for one, have been curious, you know, after everything kind of goes back to uh, pre-COVID, uh, I guess, operating parameters, do you think there'll be any role for recycling or re-sterilizing PPE? Or? Well, I mean, I think that's that's a really good question that I've been asking myself. Mm-hmm. Currently, we are re-sterilizing our N95s because not all sizes are available, and we're making sure that we actually get our process in place for if we run short. So we're using hydrogen peroxide spray um, to actually uh, recycle our N95s. We've been recycling our face shields by also using uh, other types of cleaners on those. We've we've been recycling gowns. We've been doing a lot of things that um, we weren't used to doing. In the future, just being environmentally conscious, I think that's coming out of this. I think that's the things we'll have to look at is how can we really be better to the environment as we're trying to upscale, uh, rescale up on our routine practices. I'm personally curious, and I'm sure every all of our listeners will be, what would you say is your primary source of information during this time? I think it's changed, or it's changing. Uh, I would say that initially um, the primary sources were the CDC um, and actually site of care. So we were actively calling places in China, places in Spain and in Italy on a daily basis to understand what was happening there, to understand uh, not only basic details of how patients were being managed and uh, what unusual things they were finding to be able to prepare here. I would say local leadership is also um, Dr. Cole Surdo is a president of our university, um, has access to huge amounts of information that he is getting. And so he's been the other major source uh, for the university to make sure that we actually know what's going on across our system. And um, and I would say that as this science is starting to have a little bit of light, that uh, now we've started to incorporate a lot of our subspecialty societies and um, our NIH networks um, and so forth to start having those communications between within the U.S. to understand how best we should be approaching these patients, what's going to be needed in the future, what kind of not only research, but what kind of uh, routine management should we be incorporating. So as we've shifted over the past six weeks, the information, the sources of information have changed. Not that they weren't, they're all valid at some point, but one source became a little more important for the initial phase versus the next phase versus the next phase. Always in flux. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a very good point, that different sources are good for different kinds of information, and also different phases of the epidemic require different kinds of expertise. You know, figuring out how this is transmitted and what the, you know, really the lack of testing availability and all those kind of things were sort of urgent things at the beginning. That's beginning to get better. But then, you know, antibody testing needs to come up so you can figure out who can come back to the workforce and how you sort of protect people and how you isolate flares, you know, that are going to continue to happen for some period of time, even after the peak of the epidemic fades away. 
different groups doing statistical modeling have been very helpful, I think. So University of Washington has been good at, at helping to predict um, surge need, things and to help estimate excess capacity. School of Public Health has been very engaged in that as well. Um, and they've, uh, they've got models that are based on local data. It's kind of now shifting from how to manage it, although there's still a lot of sick people and still a lot of people coming into the hospital. Um, but the future is how do you get the economy restarted? How do you get people back into the workforce? And what are the, what are the testing protocols and the assets that you need to be able to do that? There's a lot of interesting work in economics and modeling that are being done currently to look at the trade-offs between what percent of the workforce can you bring back under what conditions, what would the effects of immunity be, how sensitive and specific do the tests need to be, or do they just need to give you a signal? So there are lots and lots of things coming out. Okay, and the economics are Right. <laughs> <laughs> different episode. Yeah. Good. Yeah, definitely agree. I think everyone's has their like niche, and we kind of all have to come together and collaborate and share all of the lessons learned and what next steps forward. And Dr. Miller, I don't, I don't know how much you can talk about this, but uh, so Dr. Miller is the associate vice president for clinical research and healthcare quality. What studies or trials is at the University of Texas uh, at Houston Health Science Center involved with in regards to COVID nineteen? Stem cell trials for ARDS, I've seen in the news, or the convalescent plasma trial. Mm -hmm. Yep, so there are several of those things coming up. There, uh, As of yesterday afternoon, there were 35 uh, in the IRB queue, um, although a lot of those are surveys, and, and um, you know some of them focus on healthcare workers, some of them focus on patients. There are, uh, as you mentioned, uh, stem cell uh, trial for, a for ARDS. Dr. Patel is actually the PI of that. A couple of different convalescent plasma trials are coming up. There are some uh, combinations of antiparasitics and azithromycin, um, some uh, antiviral agents uh, in the pathway, um, some drugs that affect hypoxic signaling, some of those kind of things. Uh, and then we have a call out for, um, for grants from the CTSA, and so we expect to have 20 or 30 new submissions by Monday. So there's a lot of stuff uh, coming up. Um, so I think that we, we are trying to balance, um, you know, because you can't have a patient in more than one study, more than one trial anyway, an interventional study, it's important to be sure that we give them access to the best, um, most uh, likely to be beneficial sorts of studies. Um, but then beyond that, we also want to balance things that are a good fit for the UT environment, for the kinds of patients we're likely to have that we can learn the most from, um, and that we can make contributions to, and then also that will help develop our uh, research capacity and programs and those kind of things. I mean, one of the most important things to keep in mind is that there are no approved treatments for this illness. And so all treatments, by definition, are experimental. Mm -hmm. And so the best way to deliver care is in clinical trials in that case, because you get to the answer the fastest that way, and you reduce the number of people who are exposed to inferior treatments by learning what the best one is for, the, for what patient at what time. So being disciplined about this and organized, you know, you can't overemphasize the importance of that. Maybe not in a in the in your professional capacity at the university, but more on a personal level. Are there any implications to COVID nineteen you see in the general public going forward? I mean, do you think using PPE in public after the pandemic has subsided, or more social distancing, or in, impacts on just social health, like cultural changes? Mm -hmm. I think that'll depend on what we learn about this virus. I think that it'll, it probably will impact it in the next year or so. I think people will still linger on because I think this virus will linger on as far as the social distancing will, uh, that will be required. But I think the really question is, is that when people do develop antibodies, are they resistant to getting reinfection? And within families, if when somebody gets sick, you know, what, did everyone else either 
develop antibodies to it and and how is, should the family behave and so forth. So I think there are a lot of questions about about resistance to getting a reinfection for COVID. So I think that'll impact the social distancing. I do think for as far as our highly vulnerable populations, our elderly populations, our nursing home patients, and really and for personally me, like my parents who are 80 years old, I think that uh, what we do routinely, I think will change. And I don't think that, I think it'll be a while before we go back to business as usual in those really vulnerable populations. Yeah, I do think some of the things that will stick will be more telemedicine. Uh, the fact that the um, reimbursement rules have been relaxed during this time, uh, I think that's going to, we're going to learn that that works pretty well. And I'm hopeful that the government will continue to pay and insurers will, insurers will continue to reimburse those kinds of services because they're incredibly effective, especially for vulnerable populations. Um, so I think that's one uh, thing that's likely to change. I think people are probably getting used to liking Amazon Prime and Instacart and all these kind of things. So I think there'll be still a fair amount of food delivered at home. I have not heard anyone say that they're anxious to go on a cruise as soon as this is all over. So I think some industries will, you know, um, will change. And I think arena sports and a lot of that kind of stuff, it'll take a while. Even if the restrictions are lifted, it'll take a while for people to be ready to go back to those kinds of environments. A lot of it will depend on immunity and all those kind of things and whether or not there really is immunity. I mean, I think because we're so unaccustomed to these kinds of things in the U.S., I mean, we're used to the seasonal flu outbreak. It causes a lot of death. People are used to that, but it's a much lower rate, and it doesn't happen all at once as a general rule. And so I think there's a little bit of a shock value to this uh, epidemic as well. Over time, we'll probably wear down. In theory, as it propagates in the population and becomes endemic, it'll be less virulent or less lethal anyway, because the idea is that it should evolve towards benignity, as most coronaviruses do. But it's just, there are a lot of unknowns. There's just no way to tell at this point. But as Bella said, this won't be the last novel virus that comes our way. Um, and so I think people will, at least this generation, this will be kind of like the Depression era, of people who were frugal for the rest of their lives after the Depression. So I think there'll be more hand-washing and, you know, more um, sort of awareness of the potential infectiousness of environments and those kind of things. Wouldn't surprise me if this generation, um, the generation of humans who are alive now, um, will carry that with us most of our uh, rest of our lives, at least some of the things that we learned and some of the scars that we bear from this, um, from this uh, situation. I like it yeah. to think of it as like a game changer, like when 9-11 happened, arenas, sports, mm -hmm. sporting events, flights, like every, oh, yeah. security. Totally changed the way you went. get in an airplane. Change, yeah, that's right. Game yeah, that's changer. permanent. That's right. And yeah. I think that that's... I think there'll definitely be hand sanitizer everywhere. Everywhere. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and it'll be stocked, sure. maybe, yeah. because sometimes no. you go yeah, to get yeah. it and it's like it's empty. Um, but I think that, you know... Um, the part that I think for healthcare providers that's really emotionally difficult, and I think they'll they will remember this always, is that we're used to the flu, we're used to things like H1N1. We know the patient populations it affects. So sometimes in bad flu seasons, you know, 50,000 Americans die um, of the flu, but it's generally the elderly population who have other organ disease, and so we know in the flu season that. You know, if you're 90 years old or 80 years old and you come in and, and get put on the ventilator, the chances are high that you're not going to come off the ventilator and go home. And that's, that's where a lot of the death occurs. What's unusual about this, as you know, is that it's healthy people, healthy young people. So we've had 20-year-olds on ventilators. We've had 50-year-olds on ventilators even 80-year-olds on ventilators. And the difference is the younger populations didn't have any comorbid conditions. They're healthy, working, and all of a sudden they're in the ICU on ECMO or on mechanical ventilation. And 
And I think that image for a lot of the frontline providers is the hard image, is that um, it's different than every, anything else we've seen. Um, and I would say with H1N1, we, were, we knew that the pregnant population was more vulnerable, so we knew how, how to protect them, and we knew that those uh, patients were going to get, you know, um, the highest level care, but it was a very small subsegment population, so we all we all knew um, how to prepare for that. But I think that is the hard emotional toll at the end for the frontline providers is to see normal, healthy young people walking around, and all of a sudden not being alive a few days later. So I think that that's I think that's gonna be a lasting impression for all the frontline staff for a long time. And I think so that that will change the way they practice. That will be changed. How serious they take PPE, how serious they take hand washing. As you know, we're always harassing people to make sure they're cleaning their hands and uh, before they go in and out of patient rooms and so forth. But I think that the future will be very different. Dr. Patel, Dr. Miller, on behalf of all our listeners for the podcast, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, it was good to be here. Thank you.